My name is Mike Campbell. You're listening to Money Talks. I was thinking we better stop the presses because you know what? We've been told that the price of food is rising by, well, just under 10%. You know what? That's not quite true. As our new StatsCan report points out in our shocking stat of the week, and you do want to hear it. You'll also want to hear from the contrarian investor, Ben Glander, whose secret sauce has been to identify stocks that are out of favor, but poised for a comeback. They had a great track record. Well, you think he'd have a lot more to choose from, but no, he says there's a couple of other things he'd like to see happen first. Plus, don't miss the quote of the week from Greta Thunberg and friends. What's incredible is that the war, uh, the West is at war right now, obviously the Ukrainian invasion, and energy is a weapon. Yet there are so many people working hard to disarm us. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, this is an historic time when virtue signaling finally has collided head on with reality, where easy talk is giving way to hard reality. And nowhere is that more obvious than the climate change debate. It's astounding to see the growing appreciation that energy is the key component supporting our lifestyle. I mean, for some people, that's a revelation. It reminds me of the old Joni Mitchell line from Big Yellow Taxi. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Well, you know what? When we come to virtue signaling and climate change, no country outdoes Canada on that file. But according to our own commissioner of the environment, our country ranks dead last in the G7 for emissions reductions. And meanwhile, we should all note that we have kissed literally tens of billions of energy revenues goodbye tens of billions more in capital investment. And now we pay record amount at the gas pump for diesel, for fertilizer, both of which are propelled double-digit prices increases for food and push the price up for thousands of other goods. But for what? The worst record of emissions reductions in the G7? That's what our own commissioner of the environment says. Does it really matter? Because as Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland stated in an interview with the Financial Times, and this was January 220, even if all Canadians ceased emitting carbon, we wouldn't move the dial. We're small here. You know, the whole uh, oil sands, 15 one hundredths of 1% in global emissions. But as I said, the virtue signaling has come at a cost that we're all paying now. I mean, to be fully accurate, it must be noted that while most Canadians are upset with the record prices, well, you got to know that climate activists are actually celebrating the record prices you're paying at the pump. Why? Because it discourages consumption. That's why they want higher carbon taxes. For, ben, for them, the huge jump in oil or natural gas refined products like diesel, fertilizer, gas, that's a feature, not a bug. A good case can be made that no other aspect, though, of the progressive agenda has been more successful. Yet for some reason, hey, they're shy about taking credit publicly. Well, that's surprising if you think about it. I mean, politicians love to take credit for just about anything and everything and usually never tire of reminding us what a terrific job they've done. Well, in this case, look at it. Look at the success of Germany's green agenda, for example. They phased out fossil fuels, decommissioned nuclear plants, and they replaced them with Russian energy, which, of course, has financed the Ukraine invasion. And now they're actually facing blackouts and rationing while upping their coal production. Oh, my goodness. It's interesting, though, that no member of the media has asked any of the leading lights of the climate agenda, for example, in Canada, why not Gerald Butts? I mean, heck, the Prime Minister himself, or Catherine McKenna, or David Suzuki. How about asking about the direct consequences of the push to limit production of fossil fuels and end capital investment, despite the fact that a substitute grid powered by renewable energy is what? Best case scenario, 20 years away, hundreds of millions of tons of new mining for the necessary resources away, and that's at best. 
And reality dictates that we'll be paying directly in so many ways for the virtue signaling simplicity that's dominated the last couple of decades. I'd had my doubts, by the way, that climate activists understood that by pushing natural gas prices higher through lack of supply and capital investment, I didn't think that they understood that they were actually pushing prices of ammonia and urea through the roof and with the nitrogen-based fertilizer. That's having such a direct impact on food prices, but what's really frightening is the scarcity in so many areas, especially emerging markets. But you know what? I bet you don't know this one. I read a federal report, government report recently that states the goal of the federal government is to reduce emissions by dropping fertilizer use by 30% below the 2020 level by 2030. Well, I'll tell you, pushing prices by, up by over 100% in a year is a good start to discouraging the use of fertilizer. Meanwhile, farmers in the Netherlands, you've, I hope you've been reading, have been told by climate bureaucrats to reduce nitrogen-based pollution by 70% by 2030, but they have to do it by reducing fertilizer use and cutting back on their livestock, which, of course, has resulted in escalating protests by farmers throughout Europe, which leads to my last point, which, by the way, is not going to be very popular with the climate crowd. But as I said, and I watch, the resurgence of coal production. It's not just India and China. 21% increase in coal consumption in the U.S. last year alone. You've got increased coal production, as I said, in Germany and in Europe. When I watch the EU classify both nuclear and natural gas as green, when I watch President Biden press Saudi Arabia to increase oil production while pressuring for more gasoline prices to come down, when I watch governments, which up to now claim their deep dedication to fighting climate change, instead send out checks to offset the rise in gasoline so drivers won't have to cut back their driving. I think it's difficult to avoid the conclusion, though, that no group has done more to derail the climate agenda than climate activists and the divestiture crowd themselves. They've successfully vilified oil and gas. They've discouraged capital investment needed to increase production while peddling the fantasy that we could eliminate fossil fuels, say, in the next 10 years, some say even faster, which has led directly to the shortages, directly to the reliance on Russian energy, to the coal mining increases, and of course, the prices. As I said, and I know it's an obvious conclusion, because accountability is not popular, but you know what? And I'm expecting the blowback to get it, but I'm willing to get it. As I said, we have a great show planned for you, but allow me to ask a favor first. I appreciate listening to Money Talks on the podcast, and I really do appreciate all the support. But can I ask you to just take a moment and hit the follow button on your podcast platform? I mean, we're on all of them, whether it's Apple or Spotify or wherever. Just push that follow button. And that way, the good news is you'll never miss a show. But here's the part you can really help with. If you know someone, family member, friend who might enjoy Money Talks, especially now, I mean, look at all the turmoil being asked to, to adjust to in this financial world, and there's more, so much more to come. Please tell them about the podcast. Share it with them. And in some cases, and I know this directly, you may have to help them access podcasts in general. They're not podcast listeners. I'd love them to make them one if you can help for Money Talks. As I said, it's much appreciated. I want to get Michael Levy in here. Mike, I'm almost laughing thinking of is there any other debate? I guess there's energy and I guess there's interest rates, but I want to talk interest rates with you because I'm sure you're getting the same kind of questions I am is, you know, are they really going to push interest rates so high as to crush the housing market? Because we're starting to get indications of that. Or are they just determined to sort of try and get inflation under control by raising rates? Real tug of war here, Mike. And boy, there are experts on both sides. And I say experts on both sides. Uh, the most recent being maybe maybe market forces are going to act 
on inflation. Maybe demand is going to act on inflation in a negative way, and the Fed and the Bank of Canada do not have to step up to the plate and raise as they are intending to do, a three-quarters of 1% coming up with uh, probably both central banks, the Bank of Canada first. But Bank of Montreal uh, agrees with the Fed minutes and agrees with the fact that the Fed should go forward. And it said in their minutes, they are going to be very, uh, they, they are going to be uh, more restrictive stances and they are going to probably take rates up around the 3% handle, they said, on policy rates, over 3%. RBC is exactly on the same page. And um, they say it could also require much larger and more damaging interest rate hikes to re-anchor prices. Whereas Greg Valeri, who's a chief strategist at AGF, says the Fed Reserve is wrong. There are all indications out there that uh, the market forces are taking care of it. And there's a column in Bloomberg saying food inflation relief is within sight as prices of crops, crude, crude oil pull back. And so it is a tug of war. It looks like they're going to keep uh, raising rates. But is the Fed wrong? Is the Bank of Canada wrong? Well, I think, what, first of all, uh, you know, I looked at the Reuters uh, survey of 29 economists in Canada. Basically, all of them said we're getting 75 basis points next uh, next Wednesday. You know, and then further, not quite as many, but a huge percentage, huge majority saying we're going to get a half percentage point in September. Uh, but there's two things when we say, are they wrong? One is, is it effective policy? You know, that's one of the things, because they're not going to be able to touch energy. And I agree completely, Mike, and I'm glad you brought it up. We've certainly seen a softening. Yes, we've seen it in the oil market. We've seen a softening in the pricing for some of the grains, you know, wheat, corn, rice. We have seen it sort of ease off, which gives people some optimism that maybe the food prices will ease off a little bit. But so you can be wrong in terms of, hey, you don't need to do it. It's the wrong policy or wrong in terms of it's ineffective anyways, because it's an energy issue that has nothing to do with my demand, unless you want to push demand reduction so far that we're in a deep recession. Well, that's true. But if you take a look at the CPI, Mike, uh, gasoline prices, at least in the lower mainland of British Columbia, but all over the country, uh, have come down this week, and they've come down a couple of times. Well, that affects the consumer, and uh, that puts a little more money in their pocket. Um, and uh, they, the, the fact is, grocery prices are coming down somewhat. We've seen it. And copper, which seems to be the barometer, is certainly come down. So uh, I, I guess what Greg is asking, and I guess what BMO's putting out as a contrary is, is it going to be necessary? Because raising 75, then another 50 or 75, that could really sting the economy and maybe go a bit too far. Well, I think the other thing that we have to bring up is, come on, how how accurate has have the central banks been? You know, whether we're talking about transitory inflation or, or just about anything else, their track record is not very strong. So they've got 400 PhDs, economic PhDs, I think, working, uh, you know, in the central bank. And uh, so they all came up with the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, So I, I, there's that side also that we have to throw out there that they just plain old could be wrong. But so far, all the talk and it looks like the consensus is we're at least going to get one other big push for interest rates, both south of the border and in Canada. And maybe then they take a look, see halfway through the, you know, or halfway through the next uh, you know, couple of quarters. But that would make a big difference to the economic outlook, Mike, because even if they go with this one and then take a second look, and start to peel back just the sentiment, the pure sentiment that people feel a little better about it and that they're not 
going on this uh, um, rate raising cycle just because they said they were going to, that even without rates coming down, could get the economy jump started again, and maybe we won't have a recession. I'm in the camp that we will, but unlike the U.S. Federal Reserve, I can change my mind before the fact, not after the fact. And I'm in the camp that says, who cares? Like, honestly, if we got growth at at 0.1%, you know, so it wouldn't be a recession, or we got point under, you know, a a contraction of 0.1, who cares? No one notices, you know, so I am fascinated by the discussion about, but of course, they're talking about recessionary pressure because that's going to have the influence on the interest rates. That's the importance of that. And I certainly don't deny that. But uh, again, this is the debate that's been ongoing. It continues to be. We're in a world awash with debt, individuals with debt. They're feeling the impact on their mortgage payments, especially if you're a variable rate, that or any other variable rate. Uh, and I'll just give you two little hints. One, I'll talk to Ozzy a little bit more about the impact on the housing market. Here's the other one. Wait till you hear my shocking stat on food coming up, because I'll tell you, they have not been accurate. Well, they've been painting one picture. It's far worse. So I'll let you in on that. I'm not going to do any more teasing than that. Okay, so far worse. Let's see next week whether it's far worse or as that Bloomberg article said, maybe far better. But it's going to be an interesting topic throughout the summer, Mike. Great stuff, Mike. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, if you're wondering how big-name climate activists are handling the blatant and disastrous link between their demands to end the use of and investment in fossil fuels and skyrocketing energy prices, along with the massive impact on food that we're well aware of, massive increase in fertilizer costs that we talk about, and that's part of their war on natural gas. Well, Greta Thunberg provides the answer. In short, well, they don't acknowledge it at all. Seems like they don't have a practical bone in their bodies. It's all talk, but no possible action. No acknowledgement that fossil fuels are needed to power manufacturing. And I'm looking at manufacturing of wind and uh, wind turbines and solar components when I talk about that. And speaking of solar panels, there's no acknowledgement that China has used slave labor, and they're the dominant source of those solar panels. There's absolutely no acknowledgement of the massive increase in mining needed because you need lithium, copper, cobalt, nickel, aluminum, etc. You need that for the production of electric vehicles, wind turbines, and solar panels. They don't acknowledge it. And not a hint that they understand of Rivian Automotive chief executive says, for manufacturing batteries, in quotes, 90 to 95% of the supply chain doesn't even exist. Astoundingly, No acknowledgement that the wind and solar are intermittent power sources, and they need backup power. But at the same time, they oppose nuclear and fossil fuels. As Greta Thunberg stated this week, no amount of lobbying and greenwashing will ever make it green to have nuclear and fossil fuels, like natural gas. Which brings me to the quote of the week. This is a petition signed by climate activists and pushed forward by Greta Thunberg. It's had 300,000 signatures sent to the members of the European Parliament before their vote to include natural gas and nuclear under sort of sustainable energy category. In quotes, stand with the people of Ukraine. Don't label gas and nuclear as green and hand a gift to Putin. Labeling gas as ultimately climate friendly is a departure from the green future and could enable billions for Russia's army and its brutal aggression of Ukraine. The war is putting this taxonomy in a new context. Russian fuels are a significant source of insecurity. Soaring prices are disrupting our lives and are hitting the vulnerable the most, while filling the pockets of those responsible for taking thousands of innocent lives. 
Instead of investing in fossil fuels, Europe must shift to clean energy for the sake of peace and to protect future generations. In other words, they've absolutely learned nothing in the last year. They don't understand that it is literally impossible to create a renewable energy grid in the next five or 10 years. No acknowledgement of any of the realities that are some starting to come home to roost, like the need for resources and fossil fuels to actually build the renewable grid. In fact, they urge a clean energy solution that the most optimistic forecast estimates is at least two decades away. And you've got to keep in mind, International Energy Agency and others predict that fossil fuels are still going to be the dominant source well past 2050. I mean, it's astounding to have learned so little from such a dramatic time. It started in September and October when the wind didn't blow in the UK or Germany and their desperation for electricity that once again, Germany's reliance, and it was a planned reliance on Russian energy, absolutely fueled the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In the UK, they begged for more energy. They upped their coal production. All of that because of the limitations of relying solely on renewable energy, especially if you're talking about a major build-out of the electrical grid. Well, this is a guy I wanted to get a hold of, BenjGalanderContraTheHerd.com. Now, they've had a wonderful track record. Uh, I think their average is like 19%, but double that last year. So, I mean, it's been a great time uh, with pretty much, uh, you know, real expertise in identifying areas of the market or stocks that sort of seem out of favor, but maybe shouldn't be or about to have a rise. So I thought, my goodness, look at this market today. So I'm very pleased to welcome back the co-founder, co-editor of Contra the Herd. Benj Galander. Benj, thanks for taking time with us. Oh, Michael, it's always a pleasure. Um, great to be here. I thank you and your team for doing this. I, I looked at, you know, what we talked about the last time on, and I do follow you. And, you know, you're not surprised about all the recession talk, that's for sure. Um, and you're certainly not surprised by inflation. I remember last time we talked, uh, you, you had trouble uh, not calling the Federal Reserve and the central banks uh, names because you said they were so far off base with this transitory narr narrative. Obviously, that has worked out. But what has it meant for you as you approach the markets? Well, you know, we were doing very well this year until a month or so ago. And in the past month, quite frankly, the portfolio has not done well. I mean, the, the key to me is the setup. What I've been doing for the past while is effectively buying less and selling more. So what that does is decrease the amount of money in the portfolio. So say even if the portfolio comes down X percent, which it could perhaps either way, I then am making less or losing less, but it's certainly not hurting as much. So the setup for me was absolutely key, and I've been preparing for this for quite a while. Um, it was it was very clear in many ways what was going on. I mean, it wasn't clear to 100% probability, but it seemed to me that the powers that be, be it the politicians or the banks, uh, the central banks, they were making huge mistakes. Well, we'll elaborate on that in a minute, but I was just going to say, it's not a surprise that someone's portfolio isn't doing as well if they're not in the markets. I mean, you know, I know interest rates, of course, have gone up, but you, you, if you sit in any kind of a cash position, it was meant to be defensive. As you said, you started to sell and, and draw down your sort of equity exposure. To me, that's a big plus, a big check mark. It's just not one of those periods, unless you're 
unless an investor is a very strong short seller, and that's fine too. But other than that, for the rest of us, uh, no, it's not a time to make money. It's a time to preserve capital. It certainly has been. Oh, I agree 100%. And a lot of people, as you know, they do not like market timing. I'm a great believer in market timing. When markets have really been badly beaten up, that's when I'll do a lot of buying. When markets are high as they've been, and I still think they are high, that's when I'll be doing more selling or buying less. So to me, market timing is critical. Now, some people say it's no good. They want a dollar cost average. To me, that's stupidity because then you don't know what price you're paying. So market timing in my uh, myriad bag of tricks is one of the tools that I use. Uh, let's come back. Well, uh, there, you've given you so much in your answers that I want to go. Let's go here. Let's go there. But uh, I just want to come back to the mistakes that you feel that the central banks made. Then I'm going to come forward to what you've just alluded to. Well, I think governments have poured way too much money into the economy. So in the U.S. and in Canada and other places, too, they were very, very fearful of the pandemic, which is understandable. But I think what they then did was they just threw money at the wall and they went to see what would stick. And that was a major mistake because short term, of course, it's going to help to some degree, but longer term, you have to end up paying the piper. So huge, huge mistakes. The other one was they lowered interest rates to the lowest in history. So Michael, whenever you're looking at doing something that's a record, you really have to think, what are the short-term repercussions and what are the long-term repercussions? I was saying back then, lowering the rates so much is stupid. As we know, that really boosted real estate. Um, it's caused inflation. It allowed a lot more people to invest. But now we're going to see the problems with a lot more bankruptcies. Major, major mistakes. And these guys are pros. They should know better. Uh, let's come to the market for a second, because, of course, you've had, I, I alluded to it earlier, a terrific track record there. And But one of the things, being a contrarian investor, the contratherherd.com, is that you look for situations where, uh, this is just, sorry, but you threw the baby out with the bathwater and you thought, well, wait a minute, they've overdone it a little too much. But you were saying you still feel the market, and, uh, you know, it's a broad statement, but you still feel the market is overpriced, even after the declines we've been experiencing. Oh, absolutely. It wouldn't surprise me, and I'm not predicting this, but it wouldn't surprise me if it dropped another 20-25%. If you look at the stock market compared to uh, normal ratios, so to speak, it's very high by virtually all metrics. So when I did my review about three, four weeks ago of all the stocks in the U.S. and all the stocks on the TSX in Canada, I was coming up with quite a few names to potentially follow. But relative to when markets are really beaten up, I wasn't coming up with that many. So to me, that makes it very clear. But we just have to look at the numbers. Let's say at this point in time, markets are down about 20%. You know, it varies across the boards in the market. And that sounds like a lot, but when you're, when you're coming down from such a high level, it's not as much. And one fascinating thing now is when the market comes down five, 600 points in a day, that sounds like a huge amount. But five years ago, when it came down five, 600 points, the percentage was that much greater. And this is, you know, is a game about percentages. Yes, the 500, 600 points has meaning, 
but not like it did five, six years ago. So when you're looking at, at the market environment now, uh, do you have signals that you're looking for to tell you, okay, maybe the, like I haven't seen any washout. I haven't seen enough give up. I've got too many people asking me what to buy or when to buy it or, or what have you. And uh, so it's within that context, I sort of go, no, this is one of the advantages of being old. I mean, I remember being there in 87 and really understanding what a washout looks like, you know, and you go, just when I wanted to jump off the bridge, I started to buy. So that was one of my signals looking at my own emotional makeup. But it, there is truth to that. I haven't seen a capitulation really. Maybe uh, some of those high growth tech stocks aren't going much further when you're down 70, 80, 90 percent. But broad market, there still doesn't look like there's a lot of give up there. I'll give you two points here. In 1987, I was 30 years old. I went down to a place where the stockbrokers would gather to a restaurant. And <laughs> you, could feel, you could feel the perspiration and the glumness in the room. And I'd never seen anything like that. If I remember correctly, it came down 22.4% in one day. It was unbelievable. But no, I, I, I keep looking for a day when the market goes down a thousand plus points and it hasn't been doing that. I also am not seeing capitulation. I'm seeing as you are uh, a number of technology stocks that are getting the crap beat out of them, but they should never ever have gone up so high. They didn't have the earnings to do it. They had growth, but that growth was going to fall off. So, when I look at normal financial ratios for companies, when I look at debt levels for companies relative to cash, relative to earnings, relative, most importantly, to revenues, those companies made no sense. And, you know, you and I have seen a lot of things. I, I, I'm a, a bit younger than you, but I look at certain areas uh, that have taken a beating, such as cryptos. They should have taken a beating. The high-tech stocks, they should have taken a beating. And over the course of the years, we've both seen certain areas, you know, late 80s technology, et cetera, et cetera, that have had the crap beat out of them. And to me, the market could still fall quite a distance. And I just hope that the powers that be don't stop raising interest rate and get scared and start pumping a lot more money to the system. Because again, at some point, you have to pay the piper. Uh, let me just uh, sorry, just as an aside, I have trouble as chatting with Mike Levy earlier about this. I have trouble having any confidence. I mean, as you were alluding to, I'm going back months now saying, hey, they've blown it. This isn't transitory inflation. I'm just thinking of the number of things that uh, they've been off, like dramatically off. Even if you went back a year and looked at their inflation uh, projections, they're, they're just so far off, let alone the transitory you know, call that, of course, is very prominent today. But I don't know if I have much confidence in them, you know, to manage a soft landing. Are they trying to manage me or what are they doing? But uh, I, I, I'm from Missouri. I think I need to see a few results first. Oh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. They've just made so many mistakes. You've got to be highly skeptical. And when they were saying this was going to be transitory, I thought, well, you're going to have to redefine transitory then. Because I don't believe it's going to be transitory. Now, of course, they backed off it and said it's not going to be transitory. Uh, you know, interest rates are still low. You know, when you're talking 3% or 3.5%, that's really low. If I remember correctly, the norm is 5, 6, 7%. So we could see a doubling from here to get to the norm. 
Now, what's that going to do to a lot of people? And I, I'm laughing, and I don't mean to laugh. They're not going to be able to uh, cover costs. They've bought these inflated houses, and they're going to have a tremendous amount of difficulty paying the mortgage. People have a lot of debts. Governments have a lot of debts. So what you're going to see is major difficulties. In my province of Ontario, I look what the premier is doing, and he just said, okay, you don't have to pay for license plates anymore. So they sent me a check for about $125. I cashed it, but I didn't want it, quite frankly. Um, now they're lowering the, the gas tax by, I think it's 5.7 cents. I see what they're doing. But again, you have to have revenue coming in to pay what you're going to have to pay. So very, very short-term thinking. Am I happy to fill up my gas tank and have it cost under $100? Sure. But they just don't seem to have the capacity to really look ahead. And part of it, of course, is these people really want to be reelected. But right now, the governments in Canada seem relatively safe. But I think they have to think, what is best here? What's going to help not only our generation, but future generations? And I'm with you. I, I don't have a lot of confidence. Um, I'll just have to deal with what I have to deal with. Fortunately, I own no money. And that's absolutely critical. So rates going up don't impact me that way. No, oh, I'm with you. I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm proud of one of our biggest recommendations coming in, in the summer of 2020 was to lock in your borrowing. You can't be exposed to what we saw generally as the rise in interest rates. And I mean, many of the things we've seen, but, uh, you know, I mean, debt is where people get in trouble. Debt is where governments get in trouble. Debt, that's where government gets in. I mean, companies get in trouble. So, yeah, I mean, it, you just have to manage that. And you're, and you're quite right. We've come through this 40 year decline in this period where, man, it was casual. It was incredibly casual about taking on debt. And of course, spurred on, though, the incentive was huge. You know, I'm going to give you a mortgage. I mean, I was looking at the five-year variable rate two years ago, you know, literally on this day kind of, and mm -hmm. it was under 1%. Yeah, well, that's pretty safe. tough to say no to if you've been dreaming about getting in the housing market. Yeah, and I, I often say when I speak, one of the best investments you can make is to pay down debt. If you do that, you've got a guaranteed return. And uh, another thing to do is to buy things on sale. You know, depending on your marginal tax bracket, effectively, you have to make less money to cover that. So, you know, buying things on sale for me is huge. If I buy something that was normally $100 for $50, I don't have to earn that $100. So it's, these are very, very simple rules. People always want to know, what should I buy? What should I invest in here? Here are steps that you should take to put yourself on a better financial footing. And it's difficult for people to do also when things are going up so much because they want to keep up with the Joneses. They want that car. And what I do, I mean, in our family, my car's a 2013 Toyota. My wife had a 10-year-old plus Mazda. She just bought a used um, Volvo. So that kind of thing saves a lot of money. And if we want to talk the environment at all, it's better for the environment because you're not putting all of that material into new cars. Well, and again, it's, it's sort of what I'm hearing here is, and I, I think it's such a wonderful message is 
People are, and they're going to do it. They're going to have a new era of sort of fiscal discipline. We see it already. They've been forced to. I mean, I'm reading all sorts of surveys that say people have changed what they're buying at the grocery store. They're, you know, substituting here, there and everything. But I think that's the period we're in. Let me, let me come back to the markets here quickly, though, because I don't want to run out of time. And that is, uh, are there any areas of the market that you are more interested in? I'm not saying you're recommending it, but you're more interested in than others from what you're seeing developing. So uh, two areas specifically. One is European banks. Now, you might remember back in 2008, 2009, I bought a heap of American banks, and we made a lot of money on it. I mean, besides Bank America at six and change, we sold at 38 and change. Um, now the European banks, there's many of them. Uh, Santander in Spain, it's the leading bank in Spain. It's in Portugal. It's in the U.S. It's in Canada. It's in the States. I think it's a great bank and it pays a dividend. If you look at the German banks, I haven't bought any of them, but they've been badly beaten up. I picked up two other uh, banks for the portfolio in June. I can't say yet what they are because we give subscribers a chance to buy in first. But European banks to me make so much sense. And the other thing I own a whole bunch of is gold. And gold has come off in the past week which is one of the reasons my portfolio got beaten up in the past week. And I'm not saying the gold price is really low by any means, but there's still a number of companies in that sphere that I think are, are good buys. So to me, that's of great interest. Do you care whether it's a senior or a mid or a junior if you find sort of the right fundamentals? Or, or in a case like gold is the one, and I know people have a ton of interest in it, and maybe they, they're underexposed. Maybe I hope they are at this moment, you know, and, and th so they have capital free to go back in. Um, but do you look at sort of, okay, I'm going to look at the seniors first and see how they, they shape up. Uh, or you don't really care as long as you find the value you're looking for. Yeah, I, I, I do a filter. Stocks that have been down at least 33% in the past year. Stocks that have a 10-year track record. But it's very rare that I ever buy a stock over $10. So you're not necessarily getting a lot of seniors then, but what often happens is a lot of the gold companies and majors end up under $10. I mean, the banks ended up under $10. You look at the European banks, a lot of them are under $5, under $3. So that happens. So the key to me is to buy at a low price. It's easier for stock to go from $2 to $10 than to go from $10 to $50. It's the same multiple, but it's easier, especially because the stocks that I buy always have to have traded at least 100%, often three, 400% higher, and for a period of time. Well, as usual, fascinating to get a chance to talk. And I want to invite people to go to contratheherd.com. Contratheherd.com. Benj Galander, thank you so much for finding time. A pleasure. And if anybody has any questions, by all means, send, send them to me. And if they want me to send them an old copy of Contra, I am happy to throw that uh, on the internet for them. Great stuff. Great stuff. Benj Galander. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, maybe it should be the shocking stat of the year. I'm talking about, I alluded to it earlier, the rising cost of food. But here's the thing. We've been getting told in the StatsCan reports that food prices are up 9.7% in the last year. But maybe you're like me and you go to the grocery store and you think, Hey, that doesn't sound right. I'm paying more than that. 
So if you're like me, you won't be shocked when I tell you that StatsCan's just released another report. It's entitled Monthly Average Retail Prices for Selected Products. And it goes deeper and reports that staples, for example, have risen 20% or more. The cost of even the cheapest meat is up on average 25 to 30%. In BC, the cost of bacon, for example, is up 16%. Chicken breasts up 28% versus last year. That's better in Ontario, where chicken thighs cost 37% more than they did a year ago. In Alberta, stewing beef up 18%. It's nearly $19 a kilo now. Cost of spaghetti up 22%. Celery up 20%. In Saskatchewan, the cost of carrots up 24%. 13% for baked beans. In Quebec, they're paying 53% more for celery. Are you ready? 65% more for pork shoulder cuts. I mean, is anyone really surprised, though? I mean, given that the cost of nitrogen-based fertilizer is up over 95% in the first quarter this year compared to last quarter, and it's moved higher since. The cost of fuel, we all know it when we talk about our own gasoline, but we're talking about the machinery operated on a farm. Well, it's up 50% in the first quarter versus the same time last year. Grain feed, up over 50%. You know, what's interesting is not surprisingly, we got all sorts of politicians stating their deep concern for Canadian consumers but they never mention the link between rising food prices, government energy policies, other government edicts, well, like supply management, which forces Canadian households to pay an extra $300 to $444 more annually just for milk, eggs, and poultry. And as we've mentioned on the show, for example, with milk, they had an 8.4% rise in February. They've got an initial 2% coming in September. All I'm saying is, I don't kind of buy it when politicians start hand-wringing about their great worry when so many of their policies have led directly to the cost increases we're dealing with. As I keep saying, it's impossible not to talk about interest rates. I mean, look at the world we're living in. But of course, one of the main impact areas is uh, real estate. I'm going to get Ozzy in here right now. Ozzy Jurek, you can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Hey, Ozzy, let me just start with one thing that people uh, are, you know, it's funny, as it starts impacting people, they sort of start noticing. And it's something I know you've been warning about, but I think it, it, it really uh, merits some reiteration. And that's what's going on with that darn stress test, uh, you know, that so many people can't qualify because that rate's sh- uh, rocketed up. They can't qualify for a mortgage. Yeah, and it's, it's, that's the thing. It's, it's essentially a qualifying test that has two components. That's why it's so confusing. Originally, it was simply 2% more than what the best rate you could, five-year term, you could get at the bank. When those rates dropped to 2%, then the extra 2% was too low for the government. So they said the minimum you're going to have to qualify at is five and a quarter or the best rate at the bank plus 2%. So now that the best rate five-year term at banks is somewhere between 4.9 and five and a quarter, if you took the five and a quarter at the 2%, you have to qualify at seven and a quarter. Well, at seven and a quarter, Mike, I think that knocks out about 30% of the first-time buyers. Yeah, and again, just so people are clear, this is just to qualify for a mortgage to get involved. Right. Uh, and, you know, think about that. It's You've got you've to be able to qualify as if the rate was 2% higher than what you're right. getting. So as if it's seven and a quarter. The other thing, though, is, Ozzy, did that also apply to me? I, I know it applies to me if I want to switch financial institutions. The new one has to do a new stress test, no matter if I've owned the house for 10 years and I've got X amount left on the mortgage. Uh, so any kind of a transfer, too, seems to trigger that stress test. Yeah, and the government, I mean, from their point of view, obviously, they must be concerned about even higher rates. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so insistent. What you and I talked about two weeks ago, the secret, you know, if you wanted to beat the, the game, 
don't go for the five-year mortgage, go for a variable. I can still get a, a, a half a percent below prime variable rate. So it's 3% prime, 3.7, half percent lower at 3.2. So 3.2 plus 2% is still below the five and a quarter. So you can qualify at five and a quarter and then lock in later. But remember, you make it the money, you make it, you take it the chances, it's your decision. Because if you miss the boat or it goes faster up, uh, then so, so those are the things, unfortunately, first-time buyers have to struggle with. But it is interesting because the reports we're now getting is that obviously variable mortgages are even becoming more popular. And it may be just as you're saying, because it's easier to qualify you know, off the variable rate plus the 2% than it is off the five-year rate, you know, plus two. And then, right. yes, yeah, you said, Ozzy, your your recommendation uh, two weeks ago was, hey, then you can actually consider after you've been in it for a year, 18 months or something, switching into a locked-in mortgage if you chose to. So that's one way of sort of avoiding the higher level of the stress test. But I think that's an important point. But it is interesting that as the regular five-year fixed posted rate has gone up and, and the rates you can get, people are now gravitating back to the variable rate mortgage, which, as you say, carries more risk. But I want to come to, you know, something else here. And again, I talk about I'm living in the past, but I am. I'm living in something you told us uh, going back well over two months, first couple of weeks of February, you're worried about a top being in. But man, we are now finally seeing cracks in the pricing. Yeah, I mean, the, the sales were down as much as 63% in single family homes in Surrey, for instance. Uh, in May, and that followed up with 55% in June. So sales are down. But prices used to hold in there. But now we have some areas like the Fraser Valley, which the single family home price was a million nine in February, and now it's a million six. Well, that's a 16% decline. And if you go to places like South Burnaby, a $2.5 million house in February is now selling for $2 million. Now, the media is going to show a lot of price increases because it all, well, Anybody can make the numbers sing. Me too, right? But <clears throat> the reality is if I measure myself against last June, prices are higher. No question about it. But I look at the market every single month. And every single month since February, every single month we come down. So Vancouver overall is down about 10% since February. Condos about 8%. And then some of the sub-areas dramatically lower. And Toronto, my goodness, some of the areas in Toronto are 25 and 30 percent lower. Interesting. Uh, I'll be interested to see the latest numbers coming out of Calgary, too, as we move through the summer. And Edmonton, sorry, Alberta, I should have said. But uh, because, of course, they've got, you know, a, a veritable oil kind of uh, boom, a resurgence going on there. And that may uh, result in a much more stable uh, real estate market. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, talk about stable. First of all, I want to make a point. I'm a long-term real estate bull. Always have been, always will be for 50 years. But my number, two, I have sort of four legs to stand on for the investor. My number two leg is timing. And the timing right now is such that I would be extremely cautious on, uh, on the market uh, out there. But we have no more multiple offers, which is good. No more over the asking, crazy 100,000 over. Lots of subjects to protect the buyer and back to normal. That's all that we want. And so every realtor, really, that's worth their salt. They like this kind of a market better. Okay, let me come to one last thing here because I want to finish on a negative note. Just kidding. But <laughs> I got to just get this. Did you see that the Canada Revenue Agency has hired hundreds of agents uh, to really take a closer look 
at real estate transactions, hoping to catch people, you know, with some sort of tax irregularity uh, there. But it's just interesting. Real estate's the target because why, why else? That's where people made money. Well, it's, it's astounding, Mike. I mean, hundreds of agents collected 61,000 files, sued some 13 people criminally and convicted four. So if your cost per file was $200 and you add that to the wages that all of these agents paid, we're looking somewhere between 15 and 30 million. But I don't know. I'm just saying it's a, it's a hopefully they were able to collect uh, enough money. The crazy thing, Mike, is that CMHC disclosed that they were also compiling records on millions of mortgage holders in 2018. They said we only use it for the purposes of identifying if a borrower has more than one insured loan. And note that the information would not be identified to any individual directly. <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you've got me shaking my head, but it's just fair warning that people should know that, uh, you know, governments have to go where the money is. And we've always said, look for real estate. I think maybe some uh, transactions in the stock side of things. Pension's the one that worries me. Somehow they're going to get their money. And uh, real estate's the number one target. This just verified our case on that, Ozzy, with them hiring hundreds of new agents to have a look yeah. at different transactions here. So be warned. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. I want to remind people they can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Well, Michael, remember that uh, if you have a bad cough, take a large dose of laxatives, then you'll be too afraid to cough. <laughs> you've been here. You, no, you've made me cough right away, Ozzy. And hey, look, I want to make sure everybody understands. I'm just coughing. Don't worry about anything else at this point. Thanks, Ozzy. Have a great uh, week. Looking forward to going live to the trading desk all week. I've got a list of questions for Victor Adair. He joins me now. You can find him, though, at victoradair.ca. Hey, Vic, one of the things that's been on my mind all week is this concept that there's another element of risk that you and I continue to talk about, but it seems beyond the imagination of some people. And that is that you can get into a market and there's no bid. I mean, I can give you so many examples over the years, like 1981, when the real estate market absolutely froze, you couldn't sell your house. But you thought, hey, I thought I was rich. I thought I had a couple of houses. Not if you can't sell them. We've seen them in the stock market regularly when all of a sudden the bid goes. We've seen it in the commodity market, seen it this year at times. So, I mean, I just think it's an important point to remind people that's part of the context of our investing. You may, you know, you've got to know that that's possible and out there. Well, having a market go no bid is just absolutely the most scary thing in the world uh, when you can't sell something you own. And it, it just, well, in a way, it happened this week in, in crude oil. I mean, from last week's highs to this week's lows, WTI crude oil on the NYMEX exchange dropped about 20 bucks. And at times it was just drop, 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 drop. You know, there was no uptick at all, just down. And there was a lot of, People that were saying this is crazy, it doesn't make any sense and because of blah, blah, blah. Well, the thing is, when you are in that position and you own crude oil and you've been, say, believing the story, it made a lot of sense to you. And you're looking at the screen and thinking, holy mackerel, what the hell? Did something happen? You know, and so anyway, yeah, no bid is just the worst place you want to be. Well, and I'm glad you brought up crude oil because this is an example of something else we talk about. Always get your time frame you know, to match your analysis. So last week, uh, you had a good week. You said, I think crude oil is going down. I'm playing it to go down. But you've also made the caveat, I'm talking as a short-term trader. 
and you said, I happen to be long-term bullish. So I just want to remind people that when someone says, I think X is going to happen, check out the time frame. you know, because I certainly wasn't surprised by the drop in oil and, and you made money on that drop in oil. But both of us agreed we're long-term bullish because of structural problems within the market. But it was just a re-emphasis on that important point is, what time frame are we talking? Yeah, Mike, I, I really don't like to even say what I'm doing because I can change my mind in a heartbeat. And if somebody said, oh, Victor, blah, 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 you're going to do this, and, and they go and do it. And you know, before they've even bought their position, I'm out of mind because I looked at it and I thought, no, nah, I don't like this anymore. So yeah, it, the, the, we've talked time and time again about time frame. And if to me, that's just probably the most important thing to understand when you're managing risk is not to confuse or, or to have your the time frame of your trading get out of sync with the time frame of the analysis. Let me come to the other thing. It's the market we keep describing. I talked with Michael Levy earlier, this debate between whether the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates to such an extent, it derails the economic growth so they won't go as far as people think or vice versa. But you know what? There seems like a lot of confusion. A great example, Boris Johnson is forced to resign in the UK this week after whatever it was, five or six other uh, members, including the, uh, you know, their equivalent of their uh, finance minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Exchequer resigns. Uh, you know, and I could go on, on and on about that, but everywhere you look, you see, you know, there doesn't seem to be real direction, especially in terms of leadership. I think the markets see that the authorities we have out there, and let's say the authorities are the government and the central banks, they're floundering. Like they just, they don't, they don't know any better than anybody else what to do here. Uh, and the people, I think, sense that the, the authorities are floundering and the real issues are inflation with food and energy to, to most folks. And we're getting demonstrations. I mean, this, this business of the, 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 the Dutch farmers, and you and I were talking earlier off camera about how that's not even being covered in Canada. And it's a huge story in, in Europe. And it's not just the Dutch now. Now the German farmers are getting into it. I mean, their energy costs have skyrocketed, you know, and, and fertilizers unavailable and on and on and on. And from my perspective, the, the, the follow through from that is the euro currency it just hit a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. It's at an all-time low against the Swiss franc, which is kind of a quality spread within Europe. And the Canadian dollar, which has even been struggling on its own against the U.S. dollar, is at a seven-year high against the euro. So they got real problems in Europe, and it's shown up in the foreign exchange rate. And you know it put a smile on my face in this way. What's been one of the major themes on Money Talks? Oh, yeah. Europe is in trouble. That's why we were, I think, the only outlet to uh, predict Brexit would go through, you know, uh, you know, that we thought it would happen. We thought, uh, I, as you know, Vic, I'm always asking you long-term stuff, but I, I always said, you know, every bounce in the euro is just an excuse to get more short because it's going below par. I still think, you know, we haven't hit par yet. I think we're going below par. It'll take time and all that. But uh, yeah, what a mess over there. And I think it's classic of what you alluded to a moment ago. I mean, talk about being out of touch in this environment where farmers are facing higher feed costs, fertilizer costs, diesel costs, you know, gas costs. Oh, I know we want you to kill off some of your livestock because we're worried about nitrogen emissions. You know, uh, you know, it's incredible. It's so out of touch. And back to your point 
major story. One of these things is going to be the breaking point. And I'm not so sure it won't be the Polish farmers jumping on board with the Italian, with the German, and with the Netherlands, the Dutch farmers. Well, that just goes to the heart of what I'm calling the, the uncertainty in the market. I talked to a very good friend of mine in Chicago who's been trading his own accounts in the markets for more than 20 years. And prior to that, he was at a, prop, a, a proprietary trading desk. And he said that among his friends, everybody is trading the smallest size that they've traded in their lifetime. Like these are veteran traders, guys that got a feel for markets and they're just thinking, okay, I mean, I'm a trader. This is what I do but I don't need to like go all in on anything because just it's just, it's just so wicked out there in terms of short-term price action. And in the back of your mind, you're wondering if we're not going to just get a big break in one of the markets one of these days. Okay, let's look very, very quickly, look forward. And again, uh, people have to know within the time frame. but I mean, you talked about this US dollar, 20-year high, Europe, 20-year low, Canadian dollar, I think what will surprise people is what you just said, Vic. It's a seven-year high versus the euro. Yeah, we're, we're you know trying to tread water against the U.S. dollar down a bit, but seven-year high against the euro. Uh, you know, gold, as you said, 10-month low. I mean, the list goes on. And when you see this level of choppiness in the market, does that get you to reduce your position size? Or what, what are you thinking? Well, Absolutely. I mean, I have been talking to myself saying, I got to get my size up. I'm trading like a little old lady here. Gee whiz, you know, but it, it just it just kicks in. You just say, hey, this is my capital. I got to protect my capital. Uh, and the, the short term swings are so wicked. You just mentioned gold at, at a 10 month low. We're down three hundred and fifty dollars from the highs we made uh, the week following the Russian invasion of the Ukraine silver at a two year low. I mean, it hit, had a, hit a high, uh, well, let's say we're down about $8 from the highs in silver. Uh, the, the gold share index, it's down just about 40% from the highs it had in March. You'd think in an environment where there was so much uncertainty that gold would be doing better. But probably the, the kryptonite that's hitting the gold market is the very strong U.S. dollar and very strong real interest rate. So that's a that's a tough environment for gold. However, Mike, I will confess, I bought some gold Friday morning. Now I, I traded out of it, took a small loss. It was just down so much I thought, I gotta I gotta get the toe in the water here. But my risk management kicked in and said, idiot, this thing is going straight down. What are you doing? I may be back in it again next week and I am uh I guess I've been trading the stock market from the long side this week. Uh, going into the weekend with a long position even though I think there is a risk that the stock market could be lower as we go into the fall. Well, uh, as, as Benji Galander says, that's, that's one area he is interested in. He's having a look. But I also tell you, and just to remind everybody, gold is in a raging bull market if you're living in Zimbabwe, in Turkey, in, in Europe. You know, I, I haven't looked at a chart with the golden euro terms, but, you know, uh, you know, Canadian dollars is not near as dropped as it has in U.S. dollars. I mean, that list is a a long one, it's because the U.S. currency is also, as you just said, Vic, the strongest in the world at this point, other than the Russian ruble. Of course, all of my money's in rubles. Just kidding. The U.S. dollar. But there's so much to uh, chat about. That's why you should go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And Victor, speaking of confused leadership, you'll want to hear the goofy because it's next. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and it's a testament to the penultimate goal of politicians to win the next election even 
at the expense of the most sacred of cows, and climate change has to be that. You know, even, like give you an example, in the uber progressive climate activist state, California, the government's actually sending $1,000, up to $1,000 to motorists to offset rising gas prices so they don't have to cut back on their emissions by driving less. As I mentioned earlier, rather than seeing energy prices rise even further, well, what we're seeing too is the EU, including Germany, turning to increase coal production. I mean, that may be the definition of an about face and insanity, given they're replacing emissions-free nuclear with coal, the most emissions-intensive fossil fuel. I mean, the list goes on. I mentioned earlier, U.S. is using coal 21% more in 2021 than the year before. I think most of us, though, are used to self-serving actions by politicians, the vote buying, the misleading statements, all in the service of winning an election. In this case, I'm talking about the midterm elections in the states. So the Biden administration is actually willing to go after the ultimate sacred cow, trying to b bring oil prices down in order to help their electoral chances in no this coming November. That was the motivation for the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at the rate of a million barrels a day. They're trying to keep the price down, which, of course, removes the incentive to consume less. Although I have to point out that it's not going to help with gasoline or diesel prices because that's a refining capacity problem. Not sure if they get that. The point is, though, is that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created to be tapped from energy emergencies. But you know what? Rising prices aren't an emergency. Obviously, the Biden administration has deemed the Democratic midterm loss a far greater danger than climate change. And before I go, I got to just give you this one other goofy part. Part of the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is being sent to China. That's right. Also being sent some to Europe, but China. So instead of benefiting the U.S. citizens, the strategic petroleum releases are helping the communists in China. As I said, un unfortunately, way too regularly these days, you just can't make this stuff up. Hey, that's all the time we have. I just want to remind you, I was just thinking about what drives what we're doing on Twitter and Facebook and other social media. It's a quote by Abraham Lincoln. He said, let people know the facts and the country will be safe. Well, that's what I believe. It's up to you to do whatever you will, but there's way too much information that's not being covered. For me this week, I was noticing a little coverage the farmers' protests were getting in the Netherlands and extended throughout Europe, even though it could be of historical significance. But I'm just saying there's so many areas that you're not hearing being covered that that's why I invite you and tell your friends, etc. go to Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook because we can give you some of that data, as I say, up to you what you do with it. Other thing I want to say is that we want to hear from you. I mean, let us know what you want to hear, more or less of, topics you want us to cover, maybe some guests, that kind of thing. So you can just connect with us at moneytalks.ca or on social media. And it's very straightforward, but we love the fact that you participate with it. I do appreciate the feedback. You know, it's interesting. We've got a high class audience. Virtually all of it is respectful, different points of view sometimes, but respectful. In the meantime, I want you to go out. Have a terrific week.